Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So some of you might know, Detoxicity is not the only thing that I host. I have had a show on Radio Free Brooklyn for most of the past six years. It's gone by a couple of different names, but I have also made a lot of friends through my time at Radio Free Brooklyn. And uh, one of those friends, one such friend, I guess, is your guest on this week's podcast. He is Jarrett Berenstein. Uh, so, Jarrett, I met uh, my first year at Radio Free Brooklyn back in 2016. He hosted and produced a show on Radio Free Brooklyn as well, although, as you'll hear later, it was just a bit more high concept than my shows, in which I generally just kind of play music. Uh, Jarrett is a comedian and a writer based in New York City, though not Brooklyn, and our conversation, as uh, we would expect, goes deep into Jarrett's comedy or- origins, and especially the fact that his comedy is very sharply politically pointed in a way that may not necessarily play well in middle America, uh, which comprises some of the towns in which he performs. Anyway, in addition to his political awakening and how that reflects in his work as a comedian and as a volunteer, Jarrett and I talk about the roller coaster of depression and how medication has assisted him for the better. I always love hearing positive medication stories because so many people go on meds and have a bad time with them or have difficulty adjusting. I have certainly been in that category. Uh, we talk about his California upbringing and what brought him to the East Coast, and he and I discuss how he feels like a settled-down married man, even though... I guess there's a ring on the finger, but the ceremony hasn't been had yet. So, uh, people of the world, here is Jarrett. This is Jarrett Berenstein. I am a writer, comedian, and producer. I do political comedy, and I have a podcast where me and my friends deconstruct jokes. Very cool. Where does one get the urge to become a comedian, the urge to get up on stage and make people laugh? Oof, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I can tell you that for me, it had a lot to do with not knowing how to get people to like me and seeing people who were funny and how people reacted to them and thinking, oh, I should learn that skill because then people will like me the way that they like that person. So that was basically the stripped down psychological synopsis of my entry into it. I loved listening to stand up when I was a kid just because it was like, wow, everybody loves that person up there. They're laughing so hard at that person. And I would love to be in that position. And how old were you when you were like, yeah, I think comedy is where it's going to be. 
Well, I left college thinking that I was going to be a professional actor, and I quickly discovered that the process of becoming an actor is something that I didn't care for. I loved acting, and I still do, but I hated going to auditions. I hated the the networking, the headshots, the resume business. Like I've got a friend who's a professional actor who's like, no, you want your resume to look like this and not like this. And I don't care about this stuff, you know? And I always felt weird telling people I was an actor because it's like such a cliche. <laughs> and I started taking improv classes. That was like my first foray into it. I was always obsessed with comedy, but I didn't know how to start. I didn't know how to get my foot in the door. And then I took an improv class and I started calling myself a comedian. And it felt truer than when I was telling people that I was an actor. And then through improv classes, I was able to meet people and talk to people about how you get started writing for a television show or doing stand up. And then that began the journey. Nice cat, by the way. Thank you. This is what a Phil. cutie. What's yeah. up, Phil? So. But uh, here's a question. This just occurred to me when you go mm -hmm. home for Thanksgiving or Hanukkah. Yeah. And I don't know if, if people go home for Hanukkah, first of all. <laughs> well, like, I don't like celebrate Hanukkah. I don't I'm know. sorry. I love it. I'm loving it. The two holidays you picked, you're like Thanksgiving or Hanukkah. You're I, looking at my Jew face and you're like, I got to throw a Hanukkah out. Okay, I, I'm trying to read this boy. I'm trying to make sure I know we're I mean, on the same page here. Hanukkah. I'm, I speak I'm, your language. I'm trying to be culturally <laughs> sensitive here, man. I do. My, my dad was Jewish, but I wasn't raised Jewish. Okay. And so there's a lot of Jewish culture that I am completely oblivious to. I don't practice any religion, but yeah, we were always a Christmas household growing up. Gotcha. All right. Mm -hmm. So go home for the holidays. I should have said holidays to begin with. <laughs> Would have been safer. Yeah. Right. And your aunt or your cousin on your second aunt side or whatever it is, is like, so young, man, what do you do for a living? And you're like, I'm a comedian. What are the mm -hmm. responses like? Well, when you're a comedian, you learn quickly to not say that because <laughs> it's one of the most obnoxious way. It, the response is almost always obnoxious. People want to tell you a joke or they want to say, oh, here's a famous or better comedian that I like, things like that. And so it, almost every comedian will tell you, they'll say writer, they'll say performer before they ever get to, to stand up comic. But my family generally knows what I do. And I, I think that there's a novelty to it that I think strangers are a little bit more inclined to indulge in. Whereas I think that family, they try to be a little bit cooler about it, at least in my experience. Like my wife's family, she has told me they're interested in what you do, but they never ask me about it. And I think it's because they think like, oh, I don't want to seem like a rube. And so they just sort of like hang back where if, if I tell a cab driver I'm a comic, then it's like, oh, a thousand questions. Here's a racist joke I heard. Tell me a joke. Things like that. They're probably like, do you know Chris Rock? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, this could just be a, a trope that most comedians have a dark side. Mm -hmm. You go on stage, you tell jokes, and then you go home and you're sad or angry. Yeah, is, yeah. sad is, clown. Is, yeah. Is, is that your experience? You know, I think that there's a lot of different ways that people get into comedy. And I think for a lot of people, the impulse, the compulsion comes from having a hole that they need to fill. And so you do see a lot of it, but I'm sure you see it in a lot of other industries. And we have a very... Our, our industry is in the spotlight. And also people love the irony of it too. It's just like, hey, he makes people laugh, but he's really sad. Right. But I know a lot of very well-adjusted and happy comedians. I suffered from depression when I was growing up. I'm on medication now, but I don't think it's made me any less funny. 
But I would say that maybe there's something there. I was actually listening to an interview with Matteo Lane today where he was talking about that he didn't have that. But because he grew up gay, there was a just like a difference with the way that the world treated him versus the way that they would treat somebody who was growing up straight. And that he had to sort of like protect himself from letting people know that he was gay and just sort of like looking and observing things to calibrate to, all right, I need to fit into this world. So there was a premium in his brain on being able to pattern recognize and observe and then change your behavior based on those observations. So switch. Yes, exactly. I've heard that term, but it's not in the immediate lexicon now. But yeah, very savvy. So I think that everybody who gets into comedy kind of like has something like that, whether it's I'm better at recognizing these patterns because I have ADD or I'm on the spectrum or I yearn for the approval of others because I was missing that when I was growing up. There's something that usually pulls you into this, but it's a little bit of a cliche to say the whole sad clown thing. So I'm not going to say it's like 100% true or 100% not, but it's it's a melange. It's a cornucopia. Sure. Yeah. I mean, nothing in life is 100% true or 100% mm-hmm. false. Yeah. I, I do think that a lot of people are inclined to entertain whether mm-hmm. they're a comedian or a singer, an actor, or a, I don't know, a dancer or whatever, because there is something innate in, in them that wants to please people or get a reaction out of people. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're a confrontational comedian, you don't want to please people, but you're trying to get a rise in some way. Yeah, some of it can be any kind, like the way that somebody will try to get negative attention just because it's some kind of attention. There are probably some comedians who are like, yeah, I look for that rage response from right. the audience, and then they find their fans that way. It's a melange. It's a cornucopia. Yeah. You know? As you were talking, you are the second consecutive person that I've spoken to who is a creative that has gone on antidepressants and mm-hmm. says that it has not affected their creativity. For me, I, I will for- go so far even to say that it's made it better. Really? Yeah. I, I, I want to know what this journey is like because. Oh, I can't wait. I love talking about this. This is great. Yeah, I've been on many antidepressants over the years. And for some reason, it's always stuck in my head. And I don't even know where I learned this from, that being on meds makes you less creative. And Mm -hmm. I'm so happy to be speaking to people, multiple people that have an experience that is opposite that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, that's me. Yeah. So, So what is your story with meds? What was that process like? So I didn't go on medication until pretty late in life, but I had a lot of experience with seeing different kinds of therapists when I was younger. I went to an educational therapist and I went to just like a regular therapist because I related to the world in a weird way. And I have a lot of personal theories about where that stuff came from, but it manifested in very interesting ways, just very self-deprecating, lacking confidence, being kind of confrontational to the outside world, getting a little bit too involved in television and video games. And I have an older brother and a younger sister, and they seem to be a little bit more adept at handling reality. And so I was the one that they were like, we don't understand where this negative self-image that you have comes from. But I was convinced from a very young age that I was wrong and I was bad and it was very easy to shame spiral me. Like if I did one thing wrong or if somebody told me I did something wrong, that just turned into I'm a piece of shit. I fucking suck, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, 
because I came from a relatively well-adjusted household, we were not destitute. My parents took really good care of us. They're very loving, wonderful people. I was able to manage with this low-level depression. I was able to find coping mechanisms and that kind of butted up against my own depression. Everything that my depression stopped me from doing, I always rationalized as like, well, I need to be better at handling this. I need to be better at being a human being. If I'm more popular and more successful, then it will be easier for me to handle this or this won't happen. I won't be in this situation. I won't feel this way any, ever again. And so for a long time, that was enough. I would shut myself in a little corner. I, I pissed off a lot of people. I embarrassed myself a whole lot just because I had these real negative voices in my head telling me how awful I was and what a piece of shit I was. And it was really easy just to lose days and weeks just watching television as my recovery. I just need a little Jared time right now. So this all changed when my dad passed away because I my dad was sick for a long time and it was really hard on our family. But there was always in the back of our minds this idea that when he eventually passes away, that it will be a mercy because he'll be suffering less, we'll be suffering less. It'll be sad, but it'll be a net positive. And then when he eventually passed away, I at least, I can't speak for the rest of my family, but I was very unprepared for how actually sad I was going to be. It was pretty devastating, even though, again, he was suffering so much. And when he eventually did pass away, it still hit me like a fucking ton of brick. And my previously manageable depression became unmanageable. So my girlfriend at the time, now my fiance, was helping me through this, but really being honest and frank about what the toll of my depression was on her. Like, this is difficult for me. I don't know which Jared I'm coming home to ever. And I don't know that I'm confident that we can have fun together. And so there was a moment where I, I was going to see a therapist at the time and I asked about going on medication. I was very trepidatious about it. I was like, I don't want this to change me. I don't want to deal with side effects. I have a lot of health problems. I don't want one more thing I got to worry about. So I got the prescription, but I didn't fill it because I was like, I don't know. And so one day my fiance and I were thinking about like a fun thing to do for the 4th of July. And she was like, ooh, have you ever tried Molly? You should try Molly. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm down for that. I've never tried it. And later in life, I've opened my doors a little bit more to sure. recreational drugs, which I think is a better way to do it because it's like, what do you got to lose? You're 38, who gives right. a shit? Yeah. So we take the Molly, we go out with a couple of friends and I have a fucking blast. It is so much fun. The come down afterwards was like one of the worst hangovers I've ever had in my entire life. Just oh. a week of solid depression, like really, really bad. So I don't recommend Molly as yeah, a fun you thing just, to do. You just turned me off of trying Molly. Oh Jeez. yeah, don't do it. <laughs> but here's the thing. And here's where Molly actually saved me is what Molly does is it's basically just like a fire hose of serotonin for your brain. And when you go on antidepressants, it increases the uptick uptake of serotonin in your brain in your brain receptors and so they're similar on that chemical level even though molly is a little bit more like a nuclear bomb where where antidepressants are more like a sniper rifle you know right. so i get this fire hose of serotonin in my brain and i go on this path over the course of a couple hours from being what i thought was neutral but was actually depressed and then starting to get high and then passing actual neutral, like, oh, this is where I should be all the time. And then because it's a recreational drug, eventually going into 
way, way above that to, <laughs> oh my God, I'm having a fucking blast. I'm the most confident human being on the planet. I can't stop talking. I'm having so much fun. Everything tastes good. Everything's amazing, blah, blah, blah. So then the come down happens and it was real bad. I'll never do Molly again, probably. But it made me realize I am clearly suffering from some sort of chemical serotonin deficiency because this experience, it, it was sort of like, I didn't realize I was walking three feet under the concrete until somebody lifted me up and I was able to feel my feet on the ground for the first time in a long time. And so I told my fiance, I think I want to get to that place where I was on my way to being super duper high. And so I started taking Zoloft as my antidepressant. And there was a moment where I felt it kick in and it was like night and day. I was like, I can have fun again. I can enjoy being with my fiance again. There's joy again. And suddenly the occasional four days that I needed to take off just to like be sad, that those four days didn't exist anymore, which means that's more time that I can do the things that I like doing, like writing comedy and performing comedy and making content, stuff like that. So in that sense, I'm not in my own way anymore. The Zoloft helped me to stop navel gazing into my own sadness and needing to decompress and not leave the bed for three days straight. And suddenly that's just time where I can just be me again. I know that some people, they have a negative experience or they don't work for them. But for me, my only regret is that I didn't try them sooner. It's awesome to hear when people have had positive experiences with antidepressants, because I think people who are reluctant to try them focus on or hear more of the stories from people for whom it does not work. Mm-hmm. And it, it creates this idea in people's head that this ain't for me. I don't want to be medicated or a zombie or uncreative. And everybody's different. There's no yeah. formula here, but it sounds like it changed your life tremendously for the positive. Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. I'm no longer carrying around these hundred pound barbells that I had strapped to my back. Read Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. I have not. I have not read any Vonnegut. I'm not that cultured, Jared. <laughs> So Harrison Bergeron's a short story about a completely equal society where if you're stronger than everybody else, they put weights on you. If you're smarter than everybody else, they make you listen to loud crashing so that you can't be as smart. If you're pretty, they make you wear an ugly mask, you know? And that's what I felt like my depression was. I was like, I, I'm being weighted down and taking antidepressants was like removing those weights and finally being free to just be regular old Jared. That's awesome. And if... Had it not been for your fiance, do you think you would have reached that same conclusion? Yeah, I don't know. I want to say no, because I think that after being alive for 38 years or so, I think I was 38 when I started taking them. After being alive that long, I had developed a lot of coping mechanisms where I was like, I know how to handle this. I can think my way out of this. I'm smart enough. But at the same time, the Molly was such a definitive experience. It was so illuminating that if anybody had just given me Molly, I probably would have figured it out at that point. (laughs) But she, I would say she was instrumental in it. It's hilarious because it's like half a Molly commercial, half a (laughs) definitely do not take Molly commercial. Yeah. I was talking to some people afterwards and they were like, yeah, just do Coke. It's better. I grew up in the eighties. I heard of Len Bias and, and all those people. I will never in my life do Coke. Mm. Yeah, I still have a pretty short list of recreational drugs that I enjoy. But again, like I said, I'm open. I just finished reading this book about this professor who 
believes that every drug is less dangerous than the media has made it out to be. So it sort of opened those doors for me. The possibility that these drugs are okay in small amounts in moderation. Uh, but I completely understand anybody who's like, oh, I've seen enough movies about people getting fucked up by cocaine. I don't need to try that. I'm, I'm the just say no generation. So mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that shit worked out me for real. Yeah, I remember one of my more embarrassing moments from college was I was hanging out in a friend's dorm and somebody started handing out pills. I don't even know what they were. They were just like, hey, who wants to rock with these today? And I was like, wait a minute, guys, aren't drugs bad? And there was like a silence in the room. Like, oh, I thought Jarrett was cool. He's the fucking narc. Who invited the fucking narc to this oh, party? Man. You were a, a walking, talking PSA. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I thought I was hardcore because I drank. But, nope. Not a bit. Did you find out what the pills were? Oh, no, I don't remember. That was too long ago. <laughs> and in fact, I'm probably even if I could hunt down those people that were in that room, nobody would probably remember that story <laughs> even. Too funny. So there's a million different types of comedy, right? Mm -hmm. And the stuff that I've seen of yours has been significantly less of the my life sucks, my wife sucks kind of comedy. Your mm -hmm. comedy is definitely really pointed and sarcastic and okay. political. Yes. You wear your politics on your sleeve, and I think we share a lot of similarities in political ideology. Uh, so. so kudos to you for that. Thank you. When did you decide that it was really so important to wear your politics on your sleeve the way that you do. So I had this accelerating interest slash rage surrounded by politics. I would say starting a couple of years after I graduated from college, it always felt too complicated to me. I don't know what these guys are talking about. I didn't know that Congress was two separate houses for a long time. You know, it just didn't register for me. But then I just started noticing little things like, oh, health insurance fucking sucks. Oh, I'm not getting paid enough. Oh, the busboys of this restaurant are getting paid even less than me. Oh, that's fucked up. Oh, how about that? Oh, we still haven't done anything about fucking climate change. How about that? And then I started paying attention a little bit more to political conversations that I was hearing, started watching The Daily Show. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. Everybody's with me on this, right? This should not be, right? So this interest is gaining steam and gaining steam. And at the same time, I'm doing comedy, but I haven't figured out a way to do political comedy because I just get so angry about it. I end up <laughs> like ranting and I'm like, there's already Lewis Black. They don't need me to do it. So for a long time, I was like, I don't know how to attack this content. And even when I did start writing political stuff for my standup, I was always very cautious about it. I would go on the road and I'd be in Wisconsin, Indiana or whatever. And all of my political jokes were like, OK, so I'm a liberal, but if you guys are conservative, that's cool. Blah, blah, blah. And this was after Trump got elected. So I'm already at rage a thousand, but all my jokes are, OK, well, I'm a liberal, but I'm sorry about it, you know. Mm. And then around the time that the first impeachment trial was happening, a little bit before then, I started thinking about because I, in addition to being passionate about politics, it's really a functional rage where I'm like, I, I don't want to just live in this world. I want to try to change things. And so. Sure. I, I try to volunteer as much as I can, and I support organizations that I think help progressive values. But also, I was just running around town, constantly having this conversation in my brain. If I had a Trump supporter in front of me, what would I say to them? And then having these fake conversations where I'm like, well, I know what they would say because they're brainwashed by Fox News. And so I just I boiled it down to this one interaction where I was like, I have evidence that Trump should be impeached. Here it is. Will you read it? And they're just like, no. <laughs> and I was like, that's 
seems kind of funny. And so I filmed it and I put it on TikTok. It was the most successful thing I had ever done for online content, you know? I was emboldened by the success of that video, but also the act of creating it felt like I was exercising something from my soul. I was like, I can't just keep on having this conversation in my head. I got to put it down on paper somewhere. I got to get it out in front of other people's eyes. And recognizing how cathartic that was to have these political conversations just bouncing around in my head, being able to translate it into a short video and then put it out and having people like it and talking about it and sharing it. That's where I was like, okay, so not only is this good what I'm doing, it's not only is it healthy for me, but I think it's something that we should be proud of. I think it's something that we should not shy away from. I would go out and I would do shows and I would be like, are there any liberals in the crowd? And it would be like the weakest mealy, like, oh, yeah. like, why don't you be full throated about it? Jesus Christ. Be as fucking loud and proud about that shit as the fucking backwards ass yeah. conservatives are. Yeah, when I say any conservatives in the crowd is like, wow, wow, yeah. wow. Then these noodle armed liberals are just like, well, I am sorry. <laughs> yeah, man. So yeah, that was the whole progression where I was just like, all right, now I'm a fuck you liberal. Now I'm gonna eat my butthole liberal. Has it changed the way that you interact with your audience? Actually, no. I tour with a comic who has a very progressive audience. And so I'm always walking into a friendly room, even if I'm in Kentucky. That being said, there's definitely been moments where there's a Republican in the audience who wants to start some shit. But I'm confident that the material would stand even in that situation where it's like, I don't agree with it, but it's funny. Or I don't agree with it, but at least he's being sincere to what he believes in. And the aggressive progressiveness that has developed in me has made me more confident when I do get that pushback where I'm like, I am completely comfortable. I stand by that joke. I believe in it. And so if you're pissed off, if you're triggered by that, you can go, as I said, eat my butthole. I mean, we don't want to talk about eating buttholes or having buttholes eaten necessarily like this is a bad thing. So <laughs> maybe we need to think of a less well, already, to a segment of the population. <laughs> well, see, I've already transitioned away from saying suck my dick because right. I feel like that's a staple of the patriarchy where it's like, I'm an aggressive male and you should put my phallus in you because I want to disrespect you in that way. And so I transitioned to eat my butthole thinking that it was a woker way of saying that. Like everyone has a butthole. Everyone you know? does have a butthole. Men have buttholes. Women have buttholes. Non-binary have buttholes. And so I was like, okay, well, eating buttholes then could be a good replacement there. But now hearing what you're saying, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to malign the butthole eaters either. So maybe there's another phrase I can coin in its place. I had a relative who used to say, suck my big toe. Suck my big toe. Hmm. Interesting. I don't feel like it has the force of what I'm looking for, but I appreciate it. There's no bad ideas in a brainstorm. Exactly. You know? Given the state of the country right now, mm -hmm. how do you not go insane? Oh boy, it's rough. I actually was working on a bit about this where I'm like, I feel like you need blinders just to survive. Having a life outside of the world is really important. I heard Dan Harmon talk about this. I thought it was so beautiful where he's like, if you zoom out far enough, nothing matters. Like we're tiny specks on a tiny speck in a vast sea of nothingness. But if you zoom in, you get to live in these smaller universes of watching a movie that you love or loving your wife or a great meal and things like that. And so when you zoom out to the national level, then you see the nightmare, then you see the 
radical supreme takeover and you see Republican led legislatures who are trying to take away people's right to vote. And you see all of the rampant police brutality that even though we're yelling our fucking heads off about it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. That is the motivating thing. That is the thing that's like, all right, well, I need to do some work to help to be a part of the solution. But it's also important to zoom in and be like, I'm not in the country right now. I'm just in this room with my wife, or I am in this room getting high with my friends, or I am going to see a movie. It's one of my favorite fucking things. Right. So that's the long and short of it. I found an organization that I volunteer with a lot called Run for Something, which is dedicated to electing young progressives. And the work that I do for them is something that I'm really proud of. But additionally, it fits into my schedule really well. And so unlike some of the other organizations that I've tried to work for that I've put in volunteer hours with, it's so easy that I'm like, this can just be a thing that I do every single week. And I know that I'm making a little bit of progress. I know that I'm helping an organization as opposed to tweeting about something. You are correct. Mm -hmm. So you live in New York. Yes, sir. You are from LA. Yes, sir. Which... This is, again, I'm, I'm going to be real ignorant right now. <laughs> <laughs> you're not buff. You're not blonde. You're not tan. Fair, fair, fair. Yes. So I, I wouldn't have pegged you as an L.A. resident or someone who originated in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Even in the notes when you were like, I was born in L.A., I was like, does he mean Los Angeles or Louisiana? <laughs> I know he doesn't have a I, southern I'm accent. I'm more of a Louisiana person I, than I am a West Coast person. <laughs> neither. But no Jewish people in, from Kentucky. So mm -hmm. things possible, as Kevin Garnett said. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you should say that because on my podcast, we have a Patreon and one of the Patreon episodes we just did was we dug out our very first stand-up sets and we talked about them. And watching my first stand-up set was illuminating because number one, it's a lot worse than I remember. <laughs> Everybody's first time doing yeah, anything yeah. Is, is a nightmare. But number two is I have an accent. I have a West Coast accent. I moved to New York in 2001. And over that time, I have lost my West Coast accent. And when I first got here, everybody that I met was like, are you from the West Coast? And I was like, yeah, how can you tell? And they were like, I don't know. You just have that vibe. And huh. it really was. I couldn't even do it now if I tried. But watching the video, it is so absurdly clear that I do not sound like I sound now. And the only reason why I know it's a West Coast accent is because that's where I had just been living. So yeah, I think I've shed a lot of my West Coastisms having been here so long. So maybe that's what threw you. Maybe. But yeah, my dad and my mom met here in New York and then they moved out to LA together in the mid 70s. My dad was in real estate at the time and he developed a couple of condos out there before getting out of real estate and then going into the airline industry. So yeah, he was just a Jewish guy with his Italian wife having non-blonde children <laughs> out on the West Coast. <laughs> It's it's funny. I can place a California dialect or an accent when I hear one, mm. but I can't like repeat it back to you. I just mm. picture people sounding like that Californian sketch in, in on Saturday Oh, you Night mean Live. like just take the 405 and get in? Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And I was like, Jared doesn't sound like that. No, it's lost. Gone. It's so weird. And what I've picked up is these hard A's that all of my friends from Pennsylvania use. And the only reason why I picked it up is because I thought it sounded funny. And so now, especially when I'm doing stand-up, I throw all these really hard A's into my set and people will ask like where I'm from just based on that. And I'm like, oh, that's just an affectation that I stole because I thought it was funny. There'll always be a conversation piece. Mm -hmm. We can't tell where you're from. But you did mention in the notes that as 
idyllic as most of your childhood does sound, you have had to do a bit of growing. Um, mm-hmm. 100%. You know, yeah. You mentioned that your, uh, your dad dealt with depression. Do you think that that's hereditary? Oh, 100%. And what's unfortunate is that my dad lived in a time when there weren't as many options available to somebody who was suffering from depression. He went through a divorce before he met my mom that apparently spiraled him out. He suffered from alcoholism. Since I've been alive, he's only had like one or two times when he fell off the wagon. But for all of my life, he was just a recovering alcoholic who would go to AA meetings. And he had this whole life here in New York where he would just get hammered all the time. And some extended family once had to rescue him from a depressive psychotic episode. And wow. I think back on it about how narcissistic we all are as children, not realizing that our family has these issues that they're dealing with. And just being like, yeah, my dad was dealing with it the best way that he knew how. And he probably had a lot of the same coping mechanisms that, that I developed before I got a medication, he never was able to get medicated and he still was able to maintain and put on a brave face for his family. I was completely clueless that he was suffering from this still. But I suspect that by the time I came around, it was the light, manageable, consistent depression that I had been suffering from throughout most of my life. I wish that I had had the language and and the wherewithal to talk to him about it when, when he was still with us. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if, if he was open about it or if it's something that you kind of discovered posthumously. I discovered uh, how deep it was posthumously. I'm still friends with some of the extended family that was in my dad's life back then. And every once in a while, they meet out some really great stories about my young dad. And one of them was this depression that he fell into after after he went through his divorce. And they knocked down his door and they brought him up to the residency. He was at a hospital up in Connecticut. They fed him soup and they nursed him back to health and everything. And that was the realization that, oh yeah, these were bigger issues that my dad was dealing with. And then that made me realize like, yeah, this is probably something that was a low drumbeat constantly in his life that we just never even noticed, or at least that I just never noticed. Sure. What did your dad and the other men in your life teach you about masculinity as you grew up? And what of that are you fortunate to have learned or what from it have you had to unlearn? And Mm. it, it could be your family, your peers, whatever. Yeah. So starting off with my dad, because I think that my dad, he's very stoic. It's something that I picked up from him. He had a very gentle touch where I feel like my mom was a little bit more of an involved parent. My dad sort of appreciated being the sage on the mountain where he would say very (laughs) few things, but he wanted every word to be perfect and he wanted it to stick. And so my dad's thing was he had a few choice phrases that he taught me that I think had a lot to do with how he viewed his responsibility as a man and things like, you don't want to be the kind of person that when somebody that knows you sees you, they're going to cross the street. You want to be the kind of person who, when somebody that sees you, they're happy to see you. He was also very big on not meddling in other people's affairs. He's like, that's not your job. And I know it's hard because they're a friend of yours and they're going through it, blah, blah, blah. But you don't get to meddle in other people's lives in that way. And this one's a little less PC, but it's one of my favorites was because that a lot of the depression that was knocking around in my head as a kid and also the health problems that I had as a kid made it really difficult to figure out dating and trying to get girls to like me and stuff like that. So there were a lot of times when I was really knocked on my ass because I embarrassed myself in front of some girls or something. And 
my dad a m- m- multiple times told me just fucker bitch can't take a joke move on to the next one <laughs> and so there son, is there son is i have some words of advice for you <laughs> fucker bitch can't take a joke Move on to the next one. And there's obviously a lot that's problematic about that, but there's a gem of real wisdom in there. Just of having things wash off your back, of recognizing when people aren't right for you, et cetera, et cetera. But like I said, my dad had a very gentle touch as as a dad. And he really liked to lead by example. Like one time we got towed and he struck up a conversation with the tow truck driver and just got around with him really well. And that was like, oh, we're all the same. My dad came from a pretty affluent family in Mexico. And we grew up in a pretty good neighborhood in Los Angeles. We eventually completely ran out of money, but that's another story. But my dad was never like, I have this guy's not as good as me. This guy is beneath me. Everybody is a potential friend. Everybody's a potential good guy. And that is probably a lot of where I get my liberal rage from, where I see marginalized communities being treated like shit. And I'm like, this is not what my dad would have done. But because my dad had the soft hand, I was unfortunately a bit more of a blank slate where other ideas of masculinity came in from. And that unfortunately was my peer group and mass media. Mm. And so I'm watching guys in PG-13 movies and I'm listening to the way that my friends talk about girls. And that ends up being the way that I define my own masculinity. And at first it's the PG-13 hero, which is like the sensitive guy who doesn't try to hit on girls or anything. And then there's the cool jock who like gets too handsy. And then the really hot girl goes to the sensitive guy. And so I was like, oh, I'm gonna model myself after that. But that was extremely unsuccessful. And so I (laughs) I found myself in like really dire straits. And so I just started like the same way that I did for comedy, just looking around like, all right, who's it working for, right? We just do what they're doing, you know? And I came across the nice guys always finish last mentality and and the thing was if you're just like looking out in the world and you're seeing these attractive guys like playfully teasing girls and girls losing their minds it starts to register like oh maybe i do need to be a little bit of an asshole and so for a while i was juggling these two ideas like i want to be nice i want to be friendly i want to engage with people but i also want what these guys have that are quote unquote assholes or rebels or bad boys you know And so for a long time, I just had this weird mix of being overly sensitive, but then also just roasting women that I knew for no reason, just being so mean and thinking that I was crushing it. And it took me a really long time to work that out. It took me a really long time to come to my own realization of what that teasing actually is and how it comes from a place of love if it's done correctly. And building intimacy with people that you want to have in your life and being open and vulnerable with your emotions and how that is the real juice of being a man is that's kind of where I've landed now. And hopefully I have more growing to do, but that's the level I'm at at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. But there were some moments when I was going through that originally, and I have uh, a history of saying things and doing things to women that because I was trying to mirror that asshole vibe that I, I severely regret. And thinking that the playing field was a lot evener between men and women where I thought, well, it's okay to objectify women because they are the shitty to men sometimes, you know, because they won't let us have sex with them. So I remember one time being on a train with some improviser friends and seeing a really hot girl going by and just like pointing to my friend and being like that girl's an eight and then one of the other women that i knew being like are you rating women and i was like yeah what's the big fucking deal 
2022 Jarrett is like, I understand what the big fucking deal is. But at the time, I was just like, get off my back. Women are always on my back, you know? <laughs> you live and you learn, hopefully. Yeah. And because I grew up in a relatively blue and liberal area, Los Angeles, California, and because I grew up in the 90s, we were very big on PC culture and everything. I was learning about things like racism, like homophobia, like sexism, but I was learning about it as though it had been solved already. Right. And so for a long time, I thought that it was okay to be ironically sexist, racist, and homophobic. Like me and my friends who were like, we understand that we're not these things. So it's okay if we ironically make jokes about gay people or black people or Mexicans or women or anything like that. And it took a really long time to unfuck that idea that these aren't problems anymore. And I remember being a senior in high school and meeting this kid from Florida who was like, yeah, I just had this whole trial because of some racist shit that I had to deal with back home. And I was like, racism still exists? It's 1997, what? What? And oh, yeah, it was so mind blowing. So then I brought these misogynistic jokes with me after college. And I had a lot of female friends who rightfully like raked me through the fucking coals over it. But it took me a really long time to be like, it's not over. And so it's not funny to make these ironic jokes because there are so much of this population who isn't going to see it as ironic. They're going right. to see it as that's hilarious because it's true. And so that was another thing that I had to like seriously unfuck about myself. Just like, it's not cool and it's not funny. And I think it's really important that you at least have some people in your life who will check you mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. you say or do something stupid. You know, I, I think we all have those moments. Nobody's perfect. We can all look back on our lives and know that we have said things or done things that we regret or treated people badly. The way that you progress is that you have people in your life who say, no, you don't say that shit. You don't do that shit. You don't treat this person this way. You don't yeah. use this verbiage. And also being open to that criticism. Right. There were definitely times when I got that criticism and I was like, fuck you, bitch can't take a joke, move on to the next one. <laughs> like my dad taught me. But then taking the things that I learned and being like, no, not fuck you, fuck me. What I did was wrong because X, Y, and Z. Right. There are some people that I know who, when they still get that slap on the hand, even as minor as it might be, it still closes them off to that progress. They still think, well, fuck you. I'm not learning that lesson because you were shitty about it, you know? And so I think it is important that we get over our own ego. And if we do get slapped on the wrist, at least be able to accept it. I made a mistake. I need to be open to changing and growing. Absolutely. Now, as, as someone who was raised by a stoic, mm. and you'd mentioned that when your dad passed away, you were dealing with all of these unresolved emotions that were uh, maybe not unresolved so much as unexpected. It seems like you're growing a little bit more comfortable or a little bit more aware of your emotional bandwidth, which mm -hmm. I think this podcast is predicated on a lot of guys. We need to really do better at understanding the emotional vocabulary of ourselves and, and others like us in order to become more well-rounded people. And you had mentioned your fiance as being very helpful for you in that journey. How does that manifest itself? It is a journey the same way that all the other things have been a journey. When we first got together, there were these moments where I would turn off emotionally because I didn't really know how to handle what was going on. And I think it was just 
recognizing that in if I can't think of a way to communicate this to this woman that I really care about, then I am going to cause her pain and or she's going to leave because I'm causing negative feelings in her and she doesn't want to be around people that cause negative feelings in her. And I remember one time very specifically, there was this weird thing that happened and I don't even remember what it is, but I just remember she needed something from me. She needed me to let her know that she was in a place where she could be, that she could feel safe and that she could feel happy. And she wasn't getting that from me. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't give that to her. And she was putting on her jacket and she was very upset and she was putting on her shoes and she's walking out the door. And finally it dawned on me. I was like, the reason why I can't give her this right now is because I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. And so just as soon as she got to the door, I was like, listen, I am feeling extremely insecure right now and I'm feeling very self-conscious. And so I'm sorry about X, Y, and Z. And it was suddenly like, okay, well then I know what I'm dealing with. Now I know you don't hate me. Now I know where the facial expression is coming from and the affectation is coming from. And that realization helped me every time I had one of those moments where I was like, there's an emotion that I'm experiencing or there's an emotion that my fiance is experiencing that is causing friction between the two of us. And unless we figure out what that emotion is and where it came from, this is going to either balloon and explode into a bigger fight, or it's going to be an issue that festers and eventually becomes a huge issue later on in our relationship. Right. And so again, it's a skill that we work on, that we practice. And I don't want to brag. I think we're pretty fucking good at it. How do you extrapolate that into your other relationships or even your relationship with the world in general? With the world in general, it's a little harder because I think that the older that I get, the more hermity I get. The circle that I have, the people that I care about, has become so filtered down the older that I get. But the people that are in that circle, I have become so much more open and honest with about my feelings, about my emotions. It never occurred to me that I would have the kind of relationships with my guy friends where we would just be like, I love you, not trying to be joking about it. But that's the kind of openness that we have these days. And that's really wonderful. And something that I'm actually still working on, though, is, all right, well, what do I do about the people that aren't in that circle? Because every time I, am, I encounter another human being who's not in that circle, there's a part of me that's just like, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. I don't want to interact. I don't want to be a part of this. And that can be very brusque and it can lead to some negative emotions in other people where it seems like I'm being standoffish or rude. And so that is something that I'm still working on. But I think that the value of being able to be that open with the people that you care about is a good foundation for bringing that to the rest of the world around you, the stranger community. You're right. How does it feel to be almost married? It feels good. It's funny. I, I kind of switched from not wanting to get married to being ambivalent about getting married to being excited about getting married. And I haven't really indulged in examining this feeling yet. But I just remember one day I was hanging out with a friend of mine who already is married. And I was like, I just want to be a married man. Like, I feel like a married man. I identify <laughs> as a married man now. And my fiance, I gave her an engagement ring, obviously, when we got engaged. And she is like, I'm an engaged woman. I have this ring and it's changed me. But I'm walking around the world with no ring on. I'm just like a regular old fucking idiot. You're a dude. Yeah, exactly. I'm just yeah. a fucking dude. But I don't feel like a dude. I feel like a married man. I love my wife. I love our life together. I don't want to be out there like some fucking single ding dong. 
And so my wife eventually got me a ring. You're not really supposed to wear a ring when you're a guy until you're officially married. But I was like, fuck that. I don't Who really care about tradition. those rules. Yeah. Fuck yeah, tradition. Exactly. Yeah. So I've already started trying to change all of the jokes that I have about my my wife from being my fiance said this to my wife said this. I'm looking forward to it being official. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm already married it's, right it's now. It's official. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, I, as an unmarried person, the ceremonial part of it seems cool. But if you have that vibe with somebody, does the paperwork, does the ring, does the ceremony really matter? Like, I know that some people stand on tradition, but yeah, I've never really trucked with that stuff. I'm always just like, yeah, you do what you want to do, you know? Right on. And here is my last question, uh, all right. which has nothing to do with this podcast at all. But what happened to famous dead people? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I have another question after that. Yeah, yeah. So we both were hosts at an internet radio station called Radio Free Brooklyn. And my show was I got comedians to improvise as people who were famous people from history, famous dead people. And I would ask them questions about their lives and they would make up ridiculous answers and we would have a fucking awesome time. And it makes me happy to hear that there are people that really enjoy that show. But it was the fucking hardest show to produce that I have. I've been a very active comedy producer since I moved to New York. And that this was the biggest fucking pain in the ass of any show that I've ever produced. How so? Because every show I needed to book two comedians and the comedians had to be improvisers. Standups are not always good at riffing and making things up. It's like, okay, I know that you're funny, but can you pretend that you're Hugh Hefner for an hour and answer questions like you're him? So there's a really small pool of people that I could pull from. And so being able to cast that show was a burden and a half. Additionally, there was scheduling the show because we had hours that the studio was available, but people have jobs. And every single show was me and two comedians, which again, I'm operating from a very limited pool of people. So there's not a lot of wiggle room there. I was constantly looking. Additionally, there was the editing and producing intro song, commercials, outro, all of that nonsense. But the biggest time suck of the entire show was research, was every famous person that I had on the show. And I had two people on per episode. So like 10-ish questions every single episode based on their Wikipedia. And the questions had to be open-ended enough where they could improvise funny responses to it. And so I'm talking about hours and hours and yeah. hours of researching, writing, scheduling, emailing. I had spreadsheets on top of spreadsheets on top of spreadsheets. All right, this person did an episode a couple of weeks ago, so maybe I can get them back already, but I'd like to have a little bit more time in between. These two people have already done an episode together, so maybe I can switch it up. Here's the list of famous dead people that you can choose from. Ah, I don't like that person. All right, well, let me give you another list list of people that you can go for. It was so much fucking work. And I remember at the time, I had Famous Dead People. I had doing videos for TikTok and Famous Dead People was actually growing. My metrics were always going up and I was always seeing progress on listeners. And so those are the two justifications that I did for doing the show for so long. But at a certain point, it was so much fucking work that I remember my fiance being like, are you open to the idea that not doing Famous Dead People is a better idea than doing Famous Dead People? And so I was looking at all of the hours that I was putting into the show and all the stress of it. And the fact that I was doing it all by myself and I was just like, I think it might just be done. And the first week that I didn't have to schedule Famous Dead People, the first week that I didn't have to write questions for Famous Dead People, the first week that I didn't have to cast Famous Dead People, I was like, this is 100% the right choice. This is the <laughs> best thing. I Quitting this show is the best thing I've ever done in my life. But I'm super proud of those episodes. They're all still up if you guys want to go check them out. And all the improvisers that were on that show, I love them to death. 
the hours that they gave me of their life to put on that show and the fucking hilarity that came out of their mouths. I cannot recommend it highly enough. But unless I had a team of 10 people, I would never, (laughs) never do that. It's a lot of work, man. (laughs) The last question came to my mind because I was doing a little bit of research. I was looking through some YouTube videos. All right. And you were a gymnast? No. I did gymnastics when I was much younger, but I wasn't a gymnast. Like I wasn't a professional gymnast. What what video are you talking about? Because there's a video of you telling jokes and someone asked you to do a cartwheel. And the way they introduce you is, I don't know if they introduced you as a former gymnast or as someone who has done gymnastics. Someone who's done gymnastics sounds a lot less... uh, A lot less prestigious. Yeah, a lot less star power happening there. But I'm like, I've met Jared before. He's probably like gymnast size. Yeah, I'm pretty svelte. Yeah. I got that uh, little wiry muscle body. Yeah. You know? I did it when I was a kid and I still have a little bit of that muscle memory. I would never say I was a gymnast ever, but yeah, I know I exactly like, what show you're talking about. That was doing cartwheels with comedians or something. Yeah. yeah. If I tried to do a cartwheel, like I would be in traction right now. So <laughs> enough respect to you for being in your 30s and still being able to, to do uh, I'm 43 now. So, OK, well, you were probably <laughs> that you must have been in your 30s. That was, when... I think I was in my 30s then. Yeah, OK, yeah. so I mean, and if you're 43 and can still do a cartwheel, God bless you. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Yeah, because I would break muscles in my neck that probably don't even exist. I hope you're okay with a robot blinking for you from <laughs> yeah, now on. Exactly. Lost all eyeball movement. <laughs> exactly. No cartwheels for me. Um, <laughs> do you let people do plugs at the end? Or yeah, like you I can. Say, I, I mean, I you. usually I plug for you, but you can mm-hmm. also plug yourself. Yeah. Podcast Is This Anything is one of my favorite projects right now with two of my really good friends, Rob Ryan and Brett Truck. All three of us professional comedians. We all go on tour together and we work on new jokes together every week. My website, jaredbarenstein.com. That's got all my links to my socials and everything and a link to my store and to see all my videos and all my tour dates and everything like that. And like follow me on TikTok where I put out all of my <laughs> political, political shorts. He does. And they're awesome. Big shout out to Jared. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show and talk so openly and honestly, which I love from all my guests. And uh, if you want to check out more about Jared, go to his website, jaredberenstein.com. He wrote a book, which I forgot to mention, called The Kellyanne Conway Technique. Uh, Just judging from the title, I'm pretty sure it's an awesome and funny book. Uh, Jared hosts a podcast called Is This Anything uh, with his friends Rob Ryan and Brett Druck, so make sure you check that out. Anywhere you enjoy podcasts, uh, check out his website also for tour dates. Uh, If you ever go and see him, he is very funny. And also you can follow him on social media at at Jared Bernstein on Instagram and Twitter and on TikTok. Uh, he is a, uh, a TikTok aficionado, which I am not. So uh, make sure you check him out there as well. Thanks again, Jared. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. 
I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, Follow me on social media, like I said. Follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool-ass sticker. Lots of stuff. Once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod. Quick shout-out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and uh, doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time, peace.